Hello, this is Kinch Rendell with Your Business Podcast, helping you create a life of freedom through business, your business. Today's episode is covering Sam Walton's book, Made in America. Sam Walton is the founder of Walmart and Sam's Club. This book was fascinating, and as Ty Lopez, who I'm pretty sure brought it up and brought it to my attention, he said, if somebody created $160 billion worth of wealth, you should probably pay attention to that guy. Well, he's not with us anymore, but his book is, and for about 8 or 9 or $10, you can read it. It was a good read. It was pretty fascinating. Great stories. Lots of quotes from other people that worked with him all along the way, from going from the small time to the big, big time. Also to note, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, as in founder and CEO, he supposedly has read this book over and over and over again. And literally, if you read it and take what Sam says to heart, he even says, hey, if somebody's going to come along and do what we've done or do it better or grow another company from next to nothing to something huge. So literally, it's good. It's motivational. I will also note, though, that he is a different kind of cat. Sam Walton literally, you want to talk about being outgoing. He definitely was. And he tells you some tips in here, like things as simple as saying, hey, I really believe that just by walking down the street, you should say hi to the person approaching you before they say hi to you so he was outgoing in that manner but if you read this don't say oh i'm an introvert or i'm shy so i can't accomplish this so just realize he was different but you can definitely take some of these things and implement them in your life to get ahead and to do more to challenge yourself something i always take from it i kind of see where ty lopez says hey you got to experiment in life and in business every week every month be trying different experiments sam walton really did that He was always experimenting with how to sell something, how to promote it. He also was one that would say, hey, I would borrow things. Well, as is often said, the good people borrow and the great people steal. He would get ideas from everybody else. He was always in the other people's stores that were like his. Even once he became quite wealthy, he would still travel around the world and check out every type of store. At one point, he even got arrested. He was in South America or Central America. I think it was South America. And he's down on the floor measuring the distance between the aisles. And he's some guy that probably doesn't speak Spanish, and they arrested him. (laughs) He literally was always checking things out, always also considering he was very competitive, so he considered other businesses competitors. It probably got his juices flowing. So let's go with some of the quotes out of the book. I took a whole bunch of quotes out of the book on my Kindle and also added some notes, so these things are all shared out for me to look at them later as well as other people. Under the kindle.amazon.com is where I log in to see my quotes and notes. Start off with this one. If I had to single out one element in my life that has made a difference for me, it would be a passion to compete. So he's very competitive. They have good stories about how he said he never lost a football game. Not that he was a great football player, but he happened to be sick or injured the couple times they did lose. He was also outgoing once again in ways where he was either class president or things like that. And he then gets to college and also becomes like a member that's not just a member of a class, but literally the head of a class, always doing extra, always learning, always saying hi to people. Once again, I didn't do all that, but I think by reading his stuff and implementing some of these ideas of just simply experimenting and looking at competition and getting to know the competition, I can benefit from this. And once again, like all books, For 10 bucks, you might just read one chapter, get one idea out of it. It's so worth it. Back to the book. 
It's a story about believing in your idea, even when maybe some other folks don't, and about sticking to your guns. But I think more than anything, it proves there there's absolutely no limit to what plain, ordinary working people can accomplish if they're given the opportunity and the encouragement and the incentive to do their best. So he's basically saying right here, anybody can do it, given the opportunity, and in his case, encouraging them, and give them an incentive to do their best. And he definitely believed in that, and rewarding his associates as he went along, he learned more and more like, oh, yeah, we should tie them into the company, give them a profit structure or a stock, stock purchase structure that they can also share in the benefits. This little quote from his childhood definitely ran throughout his whole life, as he'll say here. He said, I learned from a very early age that it was important for us kids to help provide for the home, to be contributors rather than just takers. In the process, of course, we learned how much hard work it took to get your hands on a dollar, and that when you did, it was worth something. One thing my mother and dad shared completely was their approach to money. They just didn't spend it. And literally, it sounds like he literally took this to heart, and that even in Walmart, he didn't want new offices, didn't spend any money on those things. I think at some point they knock a hole through the wall to have somebody have a little office area over in the other building next door, yet I'm not sure he even had windows. And he definitely over and over says he really cared about keeping things low on the expense side because then they could sell things for less. So he even says over and over also, anytime somebody wanted to come in there and say, hey, we should buy this or we should buy more trucks to deliver the goods or we should buy a new computer system, he made them like fight for it and prove over and over because he just didn't want to spend the money. This makes me think about mentors from this little passage in here. He goes, this is his wife's family. He goes, then, uh, he says, then I got to know Helen's family. And listening to her father, Ellis Rob Robson, was an education in itself. He influenced me a great deal. He was a great salesman, one of the most persuasive individuals I have ever met. Mentors. So what I take from this is literally, you need to seek them out if you don't have any. It may be books at first. Especially, I love what Ty Lopez says about mentors that are above you that can draw you up and help you succeed more or do more in your life or do more with your life. It may be books. It may be people that are father-in-laws, mother-in-laws. could be anybody. It could be neighbors that you now live around that are retired. That's something I've tied into a lot lately is, hey, I know these people that are retiring and that have more time and that will be glad to hang out and talk to you. So look around for mentors as I, how I take this passage from him. Another thought here, the principle behind this is simple. The best way to reduce paying estate taxes is to give your assets away before they appreciate. So he covers a little section on here is how he basically had the kids set up to be owners in the business early on when it really wasn't worth much. And he covers how he was actually in debt for millions of dollars, which really bugged him. But this reminded me that Mark Shepard, who has a large, what I call permaculture farm, he did the same thing. Each of his kids own, bought into the farm or owned part of the farm way back when it wasn't worth much of anything. And he goes, I told them this. They didn't really believe it. And then he turned 18 or whatever. He goes, no, really, 25% of this is yours. When I'm gone, most of this has passed to you already because you already own it or it doesn't have to pass through the tax structure. So that's something you might want to think about. If you have kids and you're starting some business or let's say you're into rental, rental houses, you may want to include them in some of that stuff early on. Because who knows what the tax laws will be. It may be a million, maybe five million, before they start charging you 50, 55% of your estate going to taxes. So just a weird little note there, something I tied into was other people that have been successful, 
have done the same things, as in literally have your kids be partners in a business early on. Because if it appreciates big time, it's really going to save them a lot of money that they can then give away or do something else with instead of going to the tax man right away. I like it. Here's the thing he says. Money never has meant that much to me, not even in the sense of keeping score. If we had enough groceries and a nice place to live, plenty of room to keep and feed my bird dogs, a place to hunt, a place to play tennis, and the means to get the lads good educations, that's rich. So it's interesting. He's, we're going to back this up with another one. He literally didn't really care about the money. He cared more about what could he achieve and the competition of can he do it, can he achieve the next thing. Can they go? Can he start Walmart and then can he expand it? Can he become regional? Then can he go national? Then can he go around the world? That, that's what really drove him, to be better and better, keep learning, keep implementing, keep trying things, more so than more and more money. He, he, if anything, he said his wife really didn't like the fact that once they came out as one of the richest people in the state or something, everybody came down and wanted to interview them and wanted to know everything about them when they went public, actually. That all of a sudden people knew how much money they had, and that really kind of inconvenienced them, to say the least. Something here that I only somewhat relate to, we all love to fly, and we have nice airplanes. But I've owned about 18 airplanes over the years, and I never bought one of them new. So literally, even when he could buy things for new, he liked a good deal. He also liked to pass a good deal on to the customers of Walmart. I wish I could I know I have, I've never bought a new car. I wish I hadn't bought so many used cars, because still that's a bit of a waste of money personally for myself. So that's something I, I at least I think, hey, don't buy things that depreciate. If you had the choice between starting your own business, putting the money there, or buying a nice car, do the business. It probably has a much better chance of giving you something back. I literally, at one point, I was looking at getting a motorcycle. And I had a car. I had two cars at the time. I bought a, a used luxury car of sorts. And I had this other car. I was like, oh, I can get a motorcycle. And then it hit me. I was like, no. I could buy a rental property instead. And that obviously did not depreciate. It made me money over the long term. So think of things like that before you go out and spend ten, fifteen, or even $5,000. How else could you implement that? Could you buy a bunch of books? Could you go to a class? Could you go to a course, a convention, something that will help you earn more money or help your business take the next step, help you free up some more of your time? Here's a quote from one of the early Walmart partners, Charlie Baum. I've known Sam since his first store in Newport, Arkansas. And I believe that money is, in some respects, almost immaterial to him. What motivates a man is the desire to absolutely be on top of the heap. It is not money. Money drives him crazy now. His question to me at 6 a.m. no longer, not long ago was, how do you inspire a grandchild to work if they know they'll never have a poor day in their life? So once again, he wasn't motivated by the money. And take this to heart. Most likely, very few of us will be motivated by money, at least not motivated enough to accomplish earning a lot of money. For example, podcasts. I, if I was to look at this and say, I could be making money off my podcast. Well, I've been doing this off and on for three years. There's no way I would keep doing it. None. No way. Find the why. Find the reason that's beyond money. Because what you really need is the passion to keep going, to keep plodding along, to keep doing something every day, every week, every month to take the action. So don't just think, oh, I'm going to get all this money. I'm going to be a billionaire, a millionaire. No, I think really the happiness comes from the journey. And if you're passionate about what you're doing, you'll continue on the journey. You'll probably reach the financial goals as long as you're like plugged in and trying to figure out what works to monetize things. 
but it's really about having a passion to enjoy the journey that will keep you going on the road, I'd say. Back to the book. But sometimes I'm asked, why today, when Walmart has been so successful, when we're a 50 billion plus company, should we stay so cheap? That's simple, because we believe in the value of the dollar. We exist to provide value to our customers, which means that in addition to quality and service, we have to save them money. Now, I really wonder, do they still do this? Does Walmart still have the cheap side of them? Do they still have cheap offices? He literally kept everything rather cheap, and he loved that their expenses were like half of what other companies were, because once again, that would make him successful when it came to competing against them. He has a section in here where he talks about his mom being a special motivator because she motivated him to always do his best at whatever he took on. And he also covers a part where he says he was literally biased toward action. He says a trait that has been a big part of the Walmart story. And that's something that you got to look at yourself and say, hey, do I take action? And do I really try to do my best when I do something? I can tell you, man, sometimes I just go through the motions. Really, I do. So when it comes to, like, let's say podcasting, I'm, I'm about to launch a new one, but I'm going to have an intro music made because somebody said, hey, you really need to take this seriously and have those things. Now, I guess if I say I was like Sam Walton, I'm thinking, no, that's just fluff. And part of me does that, but when it comes back to experimenting, I'm like, no, I'm going to go ahead and take the extra steps and do the experiment to see if I get better feedback from that. So really, taking action such a big deal. For me, at least, it's been so much easier to listen to podcasts than create them. And guess who the successful people are? The people that take the knowledge, take the information from reading a book or listening to a podcast, and take some action to implement that daily, weekly, monthly, to learn from it. Take the action to go out there and hire an assistant, a virtual assistant, or to separate off part of the business that you're not passionate about so you will do your best at what you're good at. Back to the book. I worry that it seems like I'm bragging or trying to make myself out to be some big hero. It particularly bothers me. Because I learned a long time ago that exercising your ego in public is definitely not the way to build an effective organization. One person seeking glory doesn't accomplish much. At Walmart, everything we've done has been the result of people pulling together to meet one common goal, teamwork. Something I also picked up at an early age. And he definitely credits having partners. His brother, I forget at what point, came into the business. Maybe was there all along. Partners. He focused on his strengths and, and built teams around him that complemented that. And uh, the book I'm reading currently is Give and Take. It's about givers and takers. And this passage reminds me of the whole part where they talk about Ken Lay of Enron. Enron that blew up and Ken died before he even went to jail. Literally, he was ego first. And something interesting about that book, it says, hey, you can go through and just look at the reports from companies, public companies. And when the photos of the CEOs are huge, and how much they use the word I or something anywhere that they're at, you know they're a taker, not a giver. This made me realize Sam Walton was definitely a giver. I think he became a better giver after he realized how important it was to share the wealth with the associates and to have stock purchase plans and stock availability to the employees. So I think he realized more and more giving, giving. At first he was definitely giving to the customers, which, hey, if you don't give customers what they want, they go somewhere else. So how can you do that? How can you say, hey, it's not all about me as an organization. That's how I think you're going to build a better team. Using the we, saying, hey, we can do this together. Being willing even to give away parts of your company to other people, to other partners, 
to keep them motivated, to really prove that it's not all about you. So there, there's a lot to that, that he said teamwork, and he says that over and over again in this book. He comes down here and says, I guess I was just totally competitive as an athlete, and my main talent was probably the same as my best talent as a retailer. I was a good motivator. And there's quite a few books on this, just in leadership, how to motivate people, how to challenge them yet motivate them. It sounds like he was really good at that, really good, that he would challenge people to prove why, prove why do we need that, why do we need this, why should we do that, where should we go. He was very, very, very hands-on. They said also one thing I, I note that I've been doing more and more of, he always had his yellow um, paper. He was always taking notes about everything. Write it down, take off, come back, write it down. He was also always in the office early. I'm glad I don't work as much, but literally at times, if you want to get ahead, you may pull 10 to 14 hour days. He said he'd love to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and be in the office because it was nice and quiet. I can relate to that back when I used to be in the office. If you were there when other people weren't, less distractions, you could get more done. Some more of his mindset here. He said, it never occurred to me that I might lose. To me, it was almost as if I had the right to win. Thinking like that often seems to turn into a self, a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Attitude, that's why I take from that, it's all about attitude. He thought he could win. And believe me, if you think you have a chance of winning, so you're saying there's a chance, you take the action. You've got to one way or another trick yourself, convince yourself to keep taking action, that it might work, it might might be different this time. That failure isn't failure. Failure is just an experiment to learn from and move on from. Sam Walton worked all through high school and college. And then out of college, his first job was at J.C. Penney store in Des Moines, Iowa. Literally, he said three days after graduation, he showed up there, making $75 a month. And he said that's the day he went into retail. And there, one thing he noted was, the icing on the cake was when James Cash Penny himself visited the store one day. He didn't get around to his stores as often as I would later on, but he did get around. I still remember him showing me how to tie and package mer merchandise, how to wrap it with very little twine and very little paper, but still make it look nice. So he was already learning. Why did he go around and visit the stores in his own business? Was it because of James Cash Penny? Maybe, maybe not. But most likely I'd say yes, and he probably noted, hey, the CEO of this company is out here showing me a new employee how to do these things. He worked there for about 18 months, and let's go back to reading some more about this. He says, even back then, I was checking out the competition. The intersection where I worked and worked had three stores, so at lunch, I would always go wander around the Sears and Yonkers stores to see what they were up to. This is something, once again, he always did. How do you do that today? You check out the competition's website. You talk to any of their customers that might switch over and become your customer. You're always checking out the competition, staying on top of what's new, what's out there, how are they promoting things, how are they offering, in our case, trials. Check out the competition. I like what James Altucher says. Also know the competition. No matter what business you're in, you might eventually want to sell it. And your competition, if they're in the same line of business, may very well want to buy you out. So there's reasons to also know them as well as be checking them out all the time. After working at J.C. Penney, he realized he wanted to run his own store. 
So he literally got himself into buying out a store, a Ben Franklin store, that he thought had great potential. He notes that the biggest lesson of this was the fact that he didn't read the contract. He didn't have an automatically renewing lease. So after, let's say, four or five years, he got kicked out of there. The other thing he notes he learned there was when you're part of a franchise, they don't like you to go outside of their rules. They want you to buy so much of the merchandise from them only. So that also made him realize, wow, this isn't the way to go when I can get products, different products cheaper from somewhere else instead of always having to pay the franchisee. So he learned quite a bit in doing that. And as he says, the biggest deal was he didn't ever read the contract, even realize that after the four or five years, the landlord said, hey, thank you much for all that. I'm going to have my son run that business now. He did note that the training that came with working or with having being a franchiser literally did help him because he really didn't know much when he jumped into this business. That's what I'll tell you. I feel like I'm like that. You don't have to know a ton. If it's your passion, jump into it and try it. That's how we started a web hosting company way back, about 14 years ago. Hey, we should do this. Yes, we should. All right, what's the first step? You have to have servers. We bought them. It's kind of like once you take some action, then you have to go, oh, what am I going to do now? How, how, what's the next step? So break things down into steps, and if you're passionate about it, try it. Get into it, whether it be real estate investing or something else. Do your homework. Read up on things and do that. He mentioned it here. He went to the library and got every single book on retailing he could before he went off on his own. And I've heard somebody say that. If you are into something where you'd go and get 5, 10, 15, 100 books and read about it, you're passionate about it. You care enough that you can keep going once, you, once the road gets a little challenging, a little rough, a little steep. If it's your passion, if you really care that much about it, you'll keep doing it. Back to the book quote. I didn't just learn from reading every retail publication I could get my hands on. I probably learned the most from studying what John Dunham was doing across the street. Literally, he always seriously checked out the competition. As they say, the best steal from others. They borrow all the good ideas and try them for themselves to see if they will work for them. Here's a, here's a passage from his wife, Helen. It turned out there was a lot to learn about running a store. And of course, what really drove Sam was the competition across the street. John, over at the Sterling store, Sam was always over there checking on John, always looking at his prices, looking at his displays, looking at what was going on. He was always looking for a way to do a better job. Literally, always improving. How can you improve? Hey, what are they trying? Hey, can I tweak what they're doing for what we're doing to get something better? Always trying to improve. Always, he had enough hunger, enough passion to want to keep learning. Literally, he did this where he'd go into stores even later when he was quite wealthy and have his little tape recorder. When he didn't have his notepad, he had a tape recorder. And one store busted him and said, hey, sir, I've got to take that um, tape recorder from you. You can't just come in here and record all our prices. <laughs> so he left a note for, like, the CEO of the company or whatever. Yep, your man's good. He caught me. And he gave the guy the whole thing. Well, the CEO actually sent it back to him. So he knew who he was. So Sam was not shy in the sense that, hey, I want to know what they're doing, what they're pricing. Is that working better? Should we try that? That literally, once he was even wealthy, had it made, he stuck with the business and stuck with what got him there. You should do the same. You should find that something that you're willing to keep learning, keep learning, keep trying, checking out the competition. This is a good couple sentences from the book about his time being a franchise E. 
At the very beginning, I went along and ran my store by their book because I really didn't know any better. But it didn't take long, take me long to start experimenting. That's just the way I am and always have been. So once again, learn to experiment. What have you tried lately? Have you tried a different online advertising? Have you tried a different pricing? Have you tried different images? Have you tried putting videos on your pages of a website? Have you tried promoting things differently? Experiments, experiments, experiments. Have you tried in your own life? Hey, instead of trying to work out at four in the morning or six at night, I'm going to try the other, the opposite. Experiments. Self-improvement, I think, comes from that. And you get the feedback. You decide, hey, what's the next experiment? I like that one. I'm going to keep doing that. What else can I try? Here are some more good thoughts in the book. Somehow, over the years, folks have gotten the impression that Walmart was something I dreamed up out of the blue as a middle-aged man and that it was just this great idea that turned into an overnight success. It's true that I was 44 when we opened our first Walmart in 1962, but the store was totally out an outgrowth of everything we'd been doing since Newport, another case of me being unable to leave well enough alone, another experiment. And like most other overnight successes, it was about 20 years in the making. So really, he kept learning and learning and learning and stuck with that for t two decades before he decided, hey, I should open a Walmart and do this discounting and have it where it's self-service, where people walk up and down the aisles. I mean, I've never been to a store where you walk in and they go and get your list of items for you. But evidently back then, it was something new. I forget where he saw that. He's like, oh, we should try it like that. Yeah. I guess at that point, you get shopping carts and have them push them up and down the aisles. Crazy. He was 44 when he finally knew enough to do this. It seems like these days, people know enough when it comes to programming, whether it's Bill Gates or whoever, after a decade or maybe less, that they can know enough to create something that becomes huge and big. So he was 44, and he also set another experiment. He didn't leave well enough alone. He kept tweaking things and trying things because he was passionate about it. He mentioned in, in addition to looking at prices and how stores did different promotions and set the stores up, he also paid attention to who worked there. And throughout his history at Walmart, he hired people from the competition. He hired the people that he thought were hungry, passionate, helpful most likely, that probably had no clue who he was, especially later on. Maybe if he's across the street from somebody, they know who he is. But if he flies to another town, another city, they don't know who he is. He's some guy in there checking out things. And if they're being helpful and nice, hey, that's somebody you should write down on his little notepad. Maybe I should hire them later. And that's what he did. Sometimes it took him decades to get people to jump ship to come over and help Walmart. Another thing here he had that was pretty impressive, he would roll up his sleeves and actually put in the work. So at the beginning, definitely, before they had much going on, he was out there putting all the fixtures in his new stores with the other people helping him. So he definitely put in the hours, but also he wasn't above the other people to put in all the work, especially in those beginning years. And this is after two decades of not being, let's say, a Walmart guy. He was willing still to do that, get out there and visit the stores all the time, talk to the associates. Later, right, I think within two weeks of him passing away, when the president gave him an award, a national award, he had two or three hundred Walmart associates there to share in it. I love this quote. He says, most everything I've done, I've copied from somebody else. So he's not too proud to think, hey, I've got to come up with all these ideas myself. 
and that's where really at times I think I want to knock myself down and say, hey, don't try to recreate the wheel or invent things or do all these things all by yourself. Because a lot of times it's so much easier if you can check out what someone else is doing and implement it, try it. It's not so cutting edge if somebody's already done it and you can look at it. Let's say in websites. Literally, what does somebody have to look and feel? Can you get something similar? Can you do the same color schemes as a company that's a billion-dollar company when you're just starting out? But you're like, hey, for some reason, they use these colors over and over again. You can do that. So once again, borrow. And remember, the great ones steal. A great quote from a fellow worker or employee, David Glass, said, Two things about Sam Walton distinguish him from almost everyone else I know. First, he gets up every day bound and determined to improve something. Second, he is less afraid of being wrong than anyone I've ever known. And once he sees he's wrong, he just shakes it off and heads in another direction. That right there, I mean, that, that'd make the whole book worthwhile if you can implement some of that alone. Wake up determined to improve something. This can be in your personal life. This can be in your business. This can be a relationship with your kids. Improve something. Always just looking for things to improve means you will see and find those things to then take action on. And second, less afraid of being wrong than anyone he's ever known. So it's not that he failed. He, was scared of, he wasn't scared of failure because I bet he saw it as an experiment. Okay, I tried this experiment. It didn't work. I'm off into another thing. <laughs> One of the things they had competitions evidently to see who could promote something the best store-wise. Like, oh, at this store we're going to promote moon pies and see who can sell the most moon pies between, let's say, two or three stores. Or somebody might, one of the things they talk about, laundry detergent also. They said, okay, we're going to sell moon pies. A store did, and they sold a lot of them. So they thought, all the stores should be promoting moon pies, setting them out there. People see moon pies, they buy them. They said they learned a little lesson. They shipped them up north where people didn't know what moon pies were and didn't like that kind of sweet treat. Kind of crazy. They still tried the experiment when it worked in one store or one department. And each department, he would say, is their own little store, should tell the larger heads what to buy, what merchandise for my little department. They would then take that and share that with the other stores. And he does mention how they'd go, oh, look, for the stores by a beach, this sells really well. Let's also send some of it to the other stores if they're okay with selling those as well. He really credits that they still kept it like it was a small store owned independently almost that you could experiment with things. And he encouraged that. And so the biggest thing they needed to keep doing was keeping each of the employees engaged to that level that they had the freedom to do that. It wasn't a top-down. It was a bottom-up. Hopefully they're still like that. He does point out someplace in here, hey, people say we're, we wouldn't make it year after year after year. Hey, nope, they're not going to make it. They can't grow any larger. They can't grow any larger. Yet, obviously, they kept doing it. He goes, if I was questioning Walmart, I'd go in there and talk to some of the people that worked there. That would be very interesting. Have you done that? If you're thinking about buying into a company, I haven't. Would you go in there and interview some of the associates? Say, hey, is it pretty nice working here? Uh, what's it like? Talk to some of the department heads. I love it that he laid that out in there. He'd be like, hey, if it was me, I'd go and talk to some people at the store. Go check out some stores. That's a good point. If you're an investor, could you dare do that? If you're going to buy Target stock and you shop there, what do you think of the place? Compare and, contra compare and contrast that to other places. I like this quote. He says he said he was usually a pretty conservative conservative guy, but for some reason in business I've always been driven to buck the system, to innovate, to take things beyond where they've been. 
over and over again. He experiments. He tries things. Oh, and here's where he, he really quoted this. He goes, and, or somebody said, and he took everything I said down on this yellow legal pad. He would also go into other stores and talk to people and ask them questions, even if they were the manager and such. He was inquisitive. What are you inquisitive about? What would you love to learn more about? Follow that. See if you can make a business of that. Hopefully it's something you're in business in. And you can just improve by taking more steps, taking, trying more experiments, learning more. He talks about the amazement he had of the sales they generate with different promotions. And how they'd have stores have competitions with each other to see what they could promote and what they could sell the most of. Comes back to, I think it was Tide. He was, actually, he wasn't sure if it was Tide. But literally, the manager of the store bought so much, like, you're never going to be able to sell all this. So then they made, like, a whole row, like I think of a pyramid or a triangle-type, whole long row down the store and across the back. It was all Tide. But at that, they could blow it out of there really cheap. So literally, they're like, oh, when you have this much Tide, you make it that affordable. It's also so eye-catching. He did things like put ice cream machines outside of stores. He'd have people come out there with horses or donkeys or something, things for kids to attract the kids and families in. He was kind of crazy, and it worked. Because once again, if he tried something and it didn't work, or it didn't work five years later, okay, but what will work next, he probably said. What should we try now? Always trying things, always experimenting. He also noted that them not having lots of money, not being financed, really helped them. Because it helped them keep their costs down, which in the long term made them a success. While so many of the other big companies that weren't paying attention to them, they failed because it's such a high overhead. That's always interesting to think. If you're going to go get VC money, is that going to make you fat? Are you going to hire extra people? At the one company I worked at back around year 99, 2000, they got, I want to say, $25 million in VC money. And we had eight or nine people that were developers. They they pulled us into the company as employees. But I think we hired one or two more developers and yet ended up with a team of 60 people. It was crazy watching that money just fly around. Hey, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's pay for all these other people. Oh, wait, who's producing this product? Oh, we didn't hire more of those people. So you got to, I think, really watch it. If you have so much money, you might start wasting it. And that might not cost you while you have that extra money but it can definitely cost you later. Here's a good quote. If you want the people in the stores to take care of the customers, you have to make sure you're taking care of the people in the stores. That's the most important single ingredient of Walmart's success. So they realized when he had one store, he could definitely be there a lot and take care of the customers. But when he's no longer there, it really came down to the associates. Oh, I love the point I'm reminded of here. Somebody got the idea to say, hey, we're going to stick somebody at one of their stores, a greeter, and they're going to say hi to everybody that comes in. I'm thinking, yeah, actually, nowadays, you always see that at Walmart. Something I never realized. That also kept people from stealing as much because they wouldn't walk back out that direction as easily or think that they could because somebody was sitting there greeting. That was just another thing. It's another experiment. Some store said, hey, we have too much theft here. Ah, we'll put a greeter there. That greeter is also checking out anybody trying to walk back out that way to make sure they aren't stealing something. To drive this point home, he also says, What's really worried me over the years is not our stock price, but that we might someday fail to take care of our customers, or that our managers might fail to motivate and take care of our associates. So once again, 
You have to have somebody taking care of the customer. And as you grow in a business, past you dealing with the customers, you better make sure you hire people and have them really realize that it's all about pleasing the customers and listening to the customers to improve the business. Very key, and that's something he really realized as he said that that was his biggest fear because he knows it all started there with keeping the customers happy and keeping them coming back. I like this quote because I can relate to not being organized. He goes, but if you ask me, am I an organized person, I would have to say flat out no, not at all. Being organized would really slow me down. In fact, it would probably render me helpless. I try to keep track of what I'm supposed to do and where I'm supposed to be, but it's true. I don't keep much of a schedule. I think my way of operating has more or less driven his secretary or his two secretaries around the bend. My style is pretty haphazard. So literally, how did he get away with that? He got team members, partners around him that were good at that part. Because he wasn't. He focused on his strengths, I would say. A quote from someone that worked with him. Talking about Sam here. He finally convinced me, if you take someone who lacks the experience and the know-how, but has the real desire and willingness to work his tail off to get the job done, he'll make up for what he lacks. And that proved true nine times out of ten. It was one way we were able to grow so fast. Realize they were building new stores like crazy at some points. And had to hire new people. So the biggest key for them, they had the desire and willingness to work, to learn. So think about that as you hire people. And something I just heard from a guy this last week on a mastermind call, he had a company of 250 people. I think he's on the board now only. He literally said, if you're going to hire somebody into your business, you should spend a full eight hours with them, like a full day. And think about that. That really makes sense. If you want to hire somebody, pay them money and work with them in any decent capacity, especially if you hope to groom them and have them grow, it probably makes sense to spend eight hours with them. And he also noted it'd be great if you can spend time with their spouse or significant other because that can tell you a lot as well, he said. A little something there. If you're looking to hire people, more so than the know-how, it's a desire and willingness to work, to grow, to learn. Are they hungry? Are you going to help mentor them? Are you going to help them grow? Are they passionate in some realm that may they work with you for three or four or five years and then go off into their own thing? That can still come back to benefit you later. And believe you me, think, if you can keep somebody happy and learning and growing, giving you ideas for three to five years or a year even, that's probably a lot better than a lot of the people that are getting jobs that they can't stand, that they're instantly looking for a job that they wish they, or they, wish they had. So they're already got one foot outside the door. I like this thought he has about managing. He said he always put his fingers in everything. And then he continued with this. I learned this early on in the variety store business. You've got to give folks responsibility. You've got to trust them. And then you've got to check on them. So literally, give responsibility. Trust them to do it. But then check up. Believe you me, I know it's easy because I've managed people. Just tell people to do things and not really check or stay on them. And once again, if you hire the right people, you probably don't have to do much of that. But so often, people aren't motivated at different times, so that check on them, I think, is important. But it's so much easier when you get the right people in there. And here is where he makes a point I've said a few times. From day one, we just always found the folks who had the qualities that neither Bud nor I had, and they fit into the niches as the company grew. He worked on his strengths and stayed there and hired the people to help him. 
I'm trying to take this to heart right now myself when it comes to having other businesses. Know what your strengths are. Are you a finisher? Are you an idea person? Partner up with somebody that compliments you. I've got to say this again because he said these type statements so much. He said, and as I've said, we certainly borrowed every good idea we've come across. He talks about sometimes he would force change just for the sake of changing things. And he has a whole section here. It was kind of eye-opening for me, at least from his perspective, about Walmart coming to small towns and shutting down all the small businesses. And at this point in 2016, all kinds of stores are now closing in these small towns. And people are like, hey, wait, but I don't have to drive out of town to get my, let's say, groceries or goods. But he pointed out so many times that some people would close before Walmart opened. Whereas other people said, hey, I'm going to take this as competition and I'm going to fill a niche that they don't do. One example I think he covered in there was paint. There was some paint store, and yet Walmart sold a lot of paint. But the Walmart associates would say, hey, we've only got these four or five brands or what have you. You need to go into the local paint store. And the lady said she did a lot better because Walmart was there and because they actually filled the niche. So he really said if the merchants, the small town people would fill the niche, that they could do such a better job of serving the customer because they truly know that better than the Walmart associates would know. Let's say paint once again. And, and Walmart would never offer everything a small paint store would offer. So he really encourages anybody small business-wise, I think he's really saying, hey, take the challenge and get better at what you do. Keep the customer happy and satisfied and serve them, and you'll be fine with the Walmart moving in. I would even think if you were into groceries or something and they come in, you probably have to have the niche of only organic or organic and local or something. But it was at least, to me it was eye-opening and a positive, at least obviously you would think you would talk about the positive, of how some small merchants actually benefited, but then unfortunately somebody would close down just hearing that Walmart was coming. At this point I realized there are probably niches opening back up as these stores close down out of these small, small towns. Literally. Maybe you want to open a little convenience store. Maybe you want to expand into something like that. You might just look around and see where these stores are closing. And some places probably would gladly give you quite a bit of business because they have no other place to shop. I like this one. He said, here's the point. The bigger Walmart gets, the more essential it is that we think small because that's exactly how we have become a huge corporation, by not acting like one. He has quite a bit about communication. Let's read this and discuss it. Communicate, communicate, communicate. If you had to boil down the Walmart system to one single idea, it would probably be communication because it is one of the real keys to our success. We do it in so many ways from the Saturday morning meeting to the very simple phone call to our satellite system. So what he's really saying over and over, he said, was sharing information between stores getting information back to the corporate right away. They installed a satellite system, literally instead of using phone lines, so they could get more data and quickly back and forth. Hey, that store needs this. Hey, that store sold a lot of these. Let's try it over there. They also always had these Saturday morning meetings. So if you worked at Walmart, especially if you were close in when they started with four or five or six stores, every Saturday morning you were at a meeting talking about things. Obviously after that, they couldn't do that once they spread across the whole country. But they still found other ways to communicate And that's where he even loves going to the stores and hearing from the people running the departments. Because what, who hears the most? The associates and people in the stores about what other customers, what customers want, what they need, what they like, what they don't like. 
here's an interesting thing he did. He said it's just kind of out of the blue. So Sam says, he's at a store with some associates, he, or maybe it was on a satellite call. He goes, I want you to take a pledge with me. I want you to promise that whenever you come within 10 feet of a customer, you will look him in the eye, greet him, and ask him if you can help him. Now, I know some of you are just naturally shy and maybe don't want to bother folks, but if you'll go along with me on this, it would, I'm sure, help you become a leader. It would help you, your personality develop, you would become more outgoing, and in time, you might become manager of that store. You might become a department manager. You might become a district manager or whatever you cho choose to be in the company. It will do wonders for you. I guarantee it. Now, I want you to raise your right hand and remember what we say at Walmart, that a promise we make is a promise we keep. And I want you to repeat after me. From this day forward, I solemnly promise and declare that every time a customer comes within 10 feet of me, I will smile, look him in the eye, and greet him. So help me, Sam. <laughs> he said that was pretty funny, but he says, I'm sure that helps some people. And once again, you can read these business books and then apply these things to your life. Try experiments. Try a different kind of date. Say hi to people just in your normal life. And I haven't been to... I, I, next time I go into Walmart, I will definitely see if this happens. But I know at Chick-fil-A, they've got these things nailed. Those people are trained like no other. And I guess they're trained and also they realize it's working for them. Actually, I want to ask people at Walmart if I hear them greet me. I say, do you apply this in your outside of your job? Same thing at Chick-fil-A. What they teach you, do you apply this outside and did you notice a difference just in the way you greet people and eye contact and such? I literally read that just because I think that's helpful. It's something he evidently learned to do as a kid. And me having two kids, I realize one is like that. He's much more outgoing and saying hi to everybody. And it seems like it helps in the fact that he then thinks he has more friends because they say hi back to him. So I think your whole outlook can change just in some of the things you may be doing physically. And this is a good example, looking at people and saying hi. I remember back in college at Texas A&M, people just walk around saying howdy to people. And I bet if Sam was there when I was there, he would have been saying hi before most anybody else was saying howdy, I guess you should say. He probably was first, always out there. Lending a little word. Oh, I forget about this section. I was actually going to put this at the beginning the podcast he has 10 rules that he said worked for him and he goes one i don't even have on my list is work hard he goes if you don't know that already or you're not willing to do it you probably won't be going far enough to need my list anyway and another one i didn't include on the list is the idea of building a team so i think those two things alone are pretty important i think you also have to work smart and not just hard but also building a team so let's go through these rules and keep in the back of your mind, he said, he always prided himself on breaking everyone else's rules, and he always favored the Mavericks who challenged his rules. Rule number one, commit to your business. Believe in it more than anybody else. I think I overcame every single one of my personal shortcomings by the sheer passion I brought to my work. Commit to it and realize you have a chance. Rule number two, share your profits with all your associates and treat them as partners. He said, encourage your associates to hold a stake in the company, offer discounted stock, and grant them stock for their retirement. It's the single best thing we ever did. And I'm relating back to a guy that works at Ty Lopez, Herman, who said, when he bought a business that he didn't know much about, he literally tied in the main guy by having the guy buy in 
not only the business at some level, but also the actual land of the business. So the guy gets distributions from being a partner in the business and then also has a stake in the company that's worth a lot more, the buildings, the premises, the land. He'll sell it later. But tying him in so that he can have more peace of mind, like, hey, the more money we make, and you, since you're managing it, the more you're going to make. And, hey, the bigger we get this, the bigger of a stake you get for retirement, let's say, when, you, when we sell out. All right, rule number three, motivation. Motivate your partners. Money and ownership alone aren't enough. Constantly, day by day, think of new and more interesting ways to motivate and challenge your partners. Set high goals, encourage competition, and then keep score. Make bets with outrageous payoffs. He literally would make bets where I think he ended up in a hula, scoot, a hula skirt out in New York in Times Square because he made a bet that, let's say, they couldn't grow by X amount or something. When somebody said, oh, we'll grow by $8 billion, or we'll have $8 billion or a billion, they did it. So he kept. And lesson, our rule number 10, swim upstream, go the other way. Ignore the conventional wisdom. If everybody else is doing it one way, there's a good chance you can find your niche by going in exactly the opposite direction. And remind in the book he talks about how they went into these small towns where people said, hey, no, they can't have a, a bigger store like that. And that's how they grew. And they got large enough that all of a sudden other stores were like, hey, yeah, we should compete with them, like Kmart. And he looked at that as competition to take head on because that competition would make them better try to make them leaner and have them be a better company in the long term. And obviously, if you look now, Kmart and Sears, shoot, they may not be around another five or ten years. They've already shrunk so much it's not even funny comparing them to Walmart. Yet I know Walmart's also, I think, in 2016 going to cut out 100 stores, which comes back to there might be niches for you to go and fill in. You might want to open a small store. You might find a way to convert their stores into something else. Or, or section of stores off into several different stores. There are probably opportunities coming as some of these stores cut back. I like his thoughts here. Here's how I look at it. My life has been a trade-off. If I wanted to reach the goals I set for myself, I had to get at it and stay at it every day. I had to think about it all the time. And I guess what David Glass said about me is true. I had to get up every day with my mindset set on improving something. Think about that. Can we just wake up being grateful and then say, hey, what can we, who can we help today? What can we do to improve something? Something for ourselves, something for our friends, something for our acquaintances. That's how you're a giver. You can improve your own life, taking the little steps each and every day, several times a day, and realize they won't all be successful. Especially if they're experiments, trying something new. Hey, I'm going to be vegan for a week or a month. Try things and just look at them as not something you can fail at but only something you can learn from because call it an experiment he wraps up the book with these two questions he answers he said finally a lot of folks ask me two related questions all the time the first one is could a walmart type story still occur in this day and age my answer is of course it could happen again somewhere out there right now there's someone probably hundreds of thousands of someone's with good enough ideas to go all the way. It will be done again over and over, providing that someone wants it badly enough to do what it takes to get there. It's all a matter of attitude and the capacity to constantly study and question the management of the business. 
The second question is, if I were a young man or woman starting out today with the same sorts of talents and energies and aspirations that I had 50 years ago, what would I do? The answer to that is a little harder to, harder to figure out. I don't know exactly what I would do today, but I feel pretty sure I would be selling something. And I expect it would be at the retail level, where I could relate directly to customers off the street. I think I'd study the retail field today and go into the business that offered the most promise for the least amount of money. And realize, that's probably Amazon. Jeff Bezos. Totally read this book over and over again. And if he made it to the end, and he read this, maybe that helped the light bulb go off. Then yeah, how could I do this the cheapest? I think that's what Amazon is. He doesn't own all the merchandise. You simply can buy it, ship it to him, he'll charge you to store it, and then he will charge you to send it out. He'll even charge you to take back the return. So what can you do today? Do you think that Match.com and Facebook and Amazon will have no competitors? Do you think they'll be here 20 years from now? 50 years from now? Who knows? But he still thought, this was back in the 90s, he wrote this book, I believe. There's still chances for all of us. And I love that he says selling. If you can learn to do sales, that can help you tremendously throughout your life, I would say. That's basically what I do for my company. I answer the phone and answer people's questions. I also do some support, so I'm still touching the customer. So literally, he, he recommends sales, and he wants you to think that, yes, you can do it if somebody wants it badly enough to do what it takes to get there. He said it's all a matter of attitude and the capacity to constantly study and question the management of the business. So this was a great book, something, once again, for like $10 you should pick up. He created $160 billion of value, of stock, and changed how we look at the retail industry today. The book is Made in America by Sam Walton. This is Ken Trendell with Your Business Podcast. Hoping this helps motivate you in your business to create your own business, to free up your own time, to find something that you're passionate about. So as your business, your work, doesn't even seem like work anymore. It seems like play and fun. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you check out the book. Let me know what you think of it.